reading from the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 21 through 24. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And may the Lord bless this reading of, our word, of his word this morning to our understanding. Let's ask him to bring it alive for us. Father, as we delve into this passage and as we notice the, 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 the emphasis that Luke has given us on the law of the Lord and the, 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 the faithfulness of Joseph and Mary as they, as they go through these rites that occur in, the, in and around the birth of Christ. Lord, I pray that you will indeed bring this alive for us, that you will apply it to our hearts and, 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 and help all of us resist this modern tendency to throw the Old Testament out, to leave it behind, to delegate it to just a bunch of stories that will recognize that that's not what Jesus did. It's not what you intended either. So, Lord, help us to realize that and for it to truly come alive to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been here, you know that we've had some pretty exciting texts to look at, haven't we? I mean, it has been glorious, and Luke has been on a roll. I mean, we've seen the heavens open and the angelic hosts come down and give instructions of who the Christ child is. We've seen them glorifying God. We saw the Shekinah, the glory of God, shine on the place where they were. And then we saw them leave and go into Bethlehem and find the Christ child and share with Joseph and Mary and anyone else who would listen to them what they had seen and now they have returned to the fields and they're glorifying God for his gracious gift. And, and, and as I said, there's, there's a momentum going here. I mean, everything that we're talking from Zechariah's prayer right on through is just glorious. And, and if I were writing this book, if, if I was the author, which praise God I'm not, but if I was the author, I'd go straight to the baptism. I mean, we're talking about the glory of God, the Shekinah of God. I would go to the baptism where we see God speak from heaven, the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove, and the glory just continues. In other words, we're here at the cusp of the New Testament, the new administration, and we're chomping at the bits to go forward, but for some reason, Luke puts the brakes on and just slows us right down. I mean, we've, we've had this role going. It's been all new. It's been all focused on the coming of the Christ and the coming of the kingdom. And all of a sudden, Luke just stops us and turns our attention back to the Old Testament. Now, we're, we're going we're gonna to see why this is. It, it's hugely important because what Luke is telling us, I believe, is the same thing that Jesus stated in Matthew and elsewhere. We're not going to leave the Old Testament behind, folks. There is such a 
an error in modern Christendom right now that wants to unhinge the Old Testament, as one celebrity pastor said. We need to just leave it behind because the God of the Old Testament is not the God of love and compassion of the new. He's vengeful and angry and wrathful at sin, and we just don't even want to deal with him whatsoever. But that's not at all what Luke is doing. Luke is going to change our focus and say, wait a minute. If we're talking about the righteousness that Christ won for us, we're talking about Old Testament righteousness. If we're talking about laws that are important to God, we're talking about Old Testament laws. And if we're talking about salvation and we want to know who it is who saves us, we're talking about that Old Testament God, Yahweh is the one who saves. And as we are going to see, that is, that is embedded even in the name of the Savior who comes. Now, to put this in its context, we sort of have to step back just a wee bit and, and look at Luke's gospel at a whole, as a whole. Now, Luke, has, he's a Gentile, and we know that. He's not a Jew. But he is enthralled with Hebrew history. He is enthralled with the covenants, He's enthralled with redemptive history and God's eternal decree of the prophecies of the Christ child. And all throughout this this gospel so far, and we're only in the second chapter, he has been bringing us to, to our attention, emphasizing the Old Testament covenants with Abraham, with Moses, with David, the Old Testament prophecies and how they're going to be fulfilled in Christ. And so therefore, Luke has got our attention on Old Testament things. Now... The theme of Luke's gospel and the theme of this series is the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and you can sum up a whole bunch of what Luke is telling us in his gospel by what both Jesus and John the Baptist came preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. And the kingdom of heaven has broken into space and time. And that's exactly what we have seen so far. We saw the instructive angel come and tell us all about Jesus, who was king and savior and Lord. We saw the worshiping angels come and share with us what the occupation was of the kingdom to worship God and glorify him. And we saw those warrior angels come to show us what the objective was of the kingdom was, splitting the darkness, confronting evil, bringing the light of Jesus Christ into a darkened world. We saw the shepherds pick up on that. But now we're going to have a little bit of a, just a slowdown, where Luke says, yeah, we're moving ahead, but we're not going to leave the Old Testament behind. He's going to do that, first of all, by showing us the circumcision of Christ, the purification of Mary, the dedication of Christ, and then introducing us to two Old Testament saints, Simeon and Anna, before he gets on to the story of Jesus. So I, I want you to see this. I want you to see that not just in the way Luke is organizing his gospel, but in the very name that God gave himself, Yeshua. Yahweh saves. He tells us that we're not leaving the Old Testament behind, folks. It's as much the Word of God as is the new. With that said, let's jump into the 21st verse, which is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. 
will kind of jump around, reorganize it just a wee bit and go and deal with the 22nd through the 24th before we come back and then deal with the naming of Christ. But let's go ahead and start with that 21st verse. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, let's just stop it right there. Now that should have a familiar ring to you. I mean, if we were reading this right through, we would have just finished the discussion of the circumcision and naming of John, who will be John the Baptist. So it would be fresh in our minds. So the whole discussion of circumcision comes up. Now, we've already talked about it as far as John was concerned, and it it was the right thing to do. But brothers and sisters, there's a question that pops up here that we need to answer. Why was Jesus circumcised? Why on earth would the Son of God in the flesh need to be circumcised? And so we need to answer that question. And before we're going to be able to answer that question, I'm going to have to get a wee bit theological on you. I promise you, I'm just going to dip into it and dip right out. But, you know, here's the problem that we often run into with with theology and doctrine and and talking about these things, especially going back into Old Testament doctrine. People close down. They they, they shut their minds because I don't want to hear all that stuff. I don't want to learn all that stuff. But then you will turn right around and ask me, why do you baptize babies? And, and, And what's the relationship between the Old and the New Testament? Well, I'm about to tell you. And if you shut it out, you're not going to hear it. And there's a very good reason that is wrapped up in this kind of a text that tells us why we do those things. So let's kind of delve into this idea of circumcision and the, um, the reason that Jesus is doing this. The first reason is pretty straightforward, and it's reason enough in and of itself. And that is simply that it was the law. We've already noticed that the law of the Lord is referred to twice in this passage. It was the law. And and, and that's the reason that people got circumcised. Genesis 17 is the great chapter if you want to go in and learn all about the whole idea of the sacrament of circumcision. Go there. But there it says over and over again, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Now, there were substantial, serious sanctions and punishments for those who were not circumcised later on in that same chapter. God says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Do you remember that almost bizarre event that occurred in the fourth chapter of Exodus? After God had revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and appointed him the deliverer of Exodus. I'm sorry, the deliverer of the, of, the, of the people of Israel at the Exodus. Well, here's what we read. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, why on earth would God all of a sudden, after appointing him deliverer, stop him and almost put him to death? Well, you know the reason. Because he hadn't circumcised his son. Because he had bent to the, to the objections of his Midianite wife, Zipporah. So God took this very seriously. So there's, there, there's, there's a reason that Hebrew boys were all circumcised at eight days. And that was because it was the law. And therefore, brothers and sisters, it was absolutely essential. In fact, it was impossible that Jesus would not 
be circumcised according to this because he came to keep the law of God. You might find that unusual. It is quite unusual when you really think about it. When God, who made the universe and who made the laws, when he entered space and time, would place himself under his own law and make himself accountable to it. Now, there's a reason he did that. But this is what Paul said to the Galatians when he described it. He said, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So therefore, Jesus was placed under his own law for a reason. And that reason was so he could keep it perfectly. He could live a perfect life. He could succeed where Adam failed. As the writer of Hebrews makes it absolutely clear, for we did not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus needed to live a perfect life so that he could go to the cross as a spotless sacrifice to atone for our sins. So therefore, it was absolutely essential that he kept the law because Because it is his righteousness that allows us to stand before a holy God and not our own. That is all wrapped up in who Jesus was. So it was essential that he was going to to keep the law. But I want you to see something just to try to keep on track here. What law was it that he kept? What law was he perfect in? When Jesus went to the cross sinless and took on our sins, what law, what standard was he judged by? The Old Testament standards. Jesus was perfect and righteous according to God's Old Testament standards. And that's why it is so significant. That is why Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, there is a continuity between the old and the new. And Luke is pointing that out to us. We're not going to just go to the new covenant. We're going to bring some of the old covenant with us because these were faithful Old Testament saints. And Jesus was keeping the Old Testament law. So in a sense, I've answered the question pretty definitively. Why was Jesus circumcised? He was circumcised because... It was the law. And Jesus came to fulfill the law both passively as a child, as an infant, and actively as a man. Very important. But that's not the full question. You you see, it's not just a question. I mean, that answers the question definitively. Why did Jesus get circumcised? It was to fulfill the law. That's right. But why, why would God even allow it to happen? And, and, And here's where it gets kind of poignant, kind of sticky. We, we need to understand what circumcision represented. If we understand what circumcision represented, we're going to understand what New Testament baptism represents. And you're going to understand why in this church we continue to exercise the sign of the covenant on children. Okay, And, and, and you'll understand it if you understand what the meaning of the significance of circumcision actually was. Circumcision is the sign of a covenant that God made with Abraham. 
Now, most of us know what that covenant was. A 99-year-old man gets promised that he's going to have descendants like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And his wife is 89 years old. And God makes a covenant with him. And he says, in this covenant, this is my covenant which I will keep between me and you and your offspring, both physical and spiritual. I added this physical and spiritual part just so you understand that this is still something that you are under that your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. That's the sign of the old administration was the circumcision in a male dominant society. In our society, in the new covenant, it is baptism. But anyway, it was the covenant that God made with Abraham. It was the sign and the seal of that covenant. Now, if you remember what God made a covenant with this 99-year-old man was that you will have descendants and they will be kings and nations and all the world will be blessed through them. He says in the 12th chapter of Genesis, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so therefore, as a uh, and to ratify that covenant, if you remember, you know what happened, that God put Abraham over here and he split those animals and he walks through them both himself as two theophanies. And, and what he's saying is, Abraham, I know you're not going to be able to keep this covenant. I know that you're going to fail, but I am going to do it for you. And here's the basis and the essence of that covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will sanctify you as my people. And the sign of that sanctification, whether you look at it as something that was good for their health, whether you look at it as a national identity, but it is more than anything else a sign of God's covenant with those people. And he said this, I will save you if you believe in me. You see, the covenant that God made with Abraham was always about belief. Remember? What it says back there, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, go read the fourth chapter of Romans because Paul goes deeply into that. I'm not going to go into it this morning. We might go into it in the after church because I'm going to expand on this. But Paul goes ahead to the Romans and says, hey, he was believing in God. He was in, in the covenant before he was circumcised. The circumcision has nothing to do with it. It's a sign of the covenant God has said. And what God said is this, Abraham, I will save your children if they believe in me. And the manifestation of that belief is going to be that they keep my commandments. That was the same thing back then as it is now. Jesus says, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. That's a, the manifestation. If you truly believe in God, you're going to recognize that he is a God who loves to have his commandments and statutes kept. And so the sign of the covenant of circumcision was never about salvation or justification. It was always about sanctification. I'm going to set these apart. I promise you, I will set your children apart. And if those children believe in me... I covenant with you that I will save them. That's the reason we baptize babies. Because it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's not a sign that I accept Jesus as my Savior. If it was, no one could baptize a child. But if it is a sign of a covenant where God says, I sanctify this family. 
I sanctify your children. I set them apart because I have chosen you out of all the people on earth. And I have sanctified them. And if and when they believe in me, if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, then I promise you I will save them, take them to heaven for an eternity. That's the covenant that God makes. Okay, that said, going back to circumcision. That said, why on earth did Jesus get circumcised? Because none of that applies to him. He doesn't need to to be identified as set aside for God. He doesn't need to be sanctified. Certainly, he, he was sinless. He doesn't need to have his sins forgiven. So none of that actually applies to him. In fact, as Paul said again to the Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't need to be circumcised. Because that was a sign of sanctification. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. Because that was a sign of sanctification. But you do. You see? Here's the reason that Jesus was baptized. And this is the reason he uh, he was circumcised. When he stood before John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Do you remember the discourse between the two of them? Out of Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Not the righteousness that Jesus needs. Because he didn't need to be circumcised. He didn't need to repent. He didn't need to be baptized. But you do. He came to fulfill the righteousness that you need. And I need. To stand before a holy God. And so therefore to fulfill all righteousness. Passively as an infant he is circumcised. And actively as an adult he is baptized. Do you get it? That's the reason Jesus was circumcised. To fulfill all righteousness. He didn't need it. He was already righteous. He did it for you and for me. It's a covenant from God to us. And that's the reason we baptize babies. Well, anyway, I got off on that a little bit more than I wanted to because that's, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the after church. But really, the poignant thing that is said here in the 21st verse is the naming of Jesus. You may remember from John the Baptist that they named and circumcised at the same time. So finishing the verse out, we read, He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. That's what the meaning of the word is. Now, If we were just reading through this letter of Luke's, as it is meant to be read, it is a letter. If we were just reading through it, then we would recognize that a major discussion went on just a little while ago, a couple of paragraphs ago. A major discussion went on about the naming of John the Baptist. Remember that? You know, nobody wanted to call him John. But the angel who is in heaven came, and he's nothing but a messenger from God, he came, Gabriel, and told Zechariah his name will be John. So there was that whole discussion. And if we were reading this through as a letter, it would still be bright in our minds. 
that there's a reason that God would name someone. And here, brothers and sisters, God names himself. And when he names himself, you know that it's important. And actually, it's so important, I'm going to do something that's a little unusual. I'm going to skip over it. I'm not going to skip over it completely. We're going to come back to it because I, I really want to key on that. That's where I want to end. So let's stay on track now. We're talking about these Old Testament saints and how they were faithfully exercising the Old Testament commands. Let's go ahead and finish it because that's what the rest of the text is. So look on verse 22 or look at, at verse 22. We'll come back to the 21st verse later. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, now let's just stop it there. When the time came for their purification, very interesting statement, and that is, most scholars authenticate that to be valid, the original, because it wasn't them who needed to be purified. The only one who needed to be purified was Mary. Because Mary had just delivered the child, the, the boy, and the Jews had, according, I mean, according to the law of God, definitely, there was a purification process. In other words, um, uh, this is what it says in Leviticus. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, and then 33 more days had to pass before she could touch anything that was holy, enter the sanctuary or the temple or the synagogue or anything. She was considered to be that sort of a holding time. So Mary had to be purified. So why did Luke say their purification? Well, as you might imagine, there's all kinds of ideas. I'm not going to go into them. I think probably one of the most valid is that Joseph probably had something to do with the delivery. And so they were um, requiring that sort of purification for him as well. But the only thing I want you to see about the rites of purification is that Joseph and Mary are faithfully exercising the Old Testament law to the letter so that all righteousness, even passively to this infant, would be accomplished. Now, later on, we'll see in the 24th verse, there's a sacrifice that goes with this. But let's go ahead and take a look at the, at the end of that verse in the 23rd because it talks about not just... Now, we've seen circumcision... And we've seen um, the purification. Now we're going to see dedication, the dedication of Christ. Because it says there in the second half of 22, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, what they're doing is following, uh, again, a commandment of God. And that's listed for us here in the 23rd verse. As it is written in the law of the Lord... I love the way that Luke says over and over again, the law of the Lord and not the law of Moses. When the Pharisees would talk quite often, they would talk about the law of Moses. But Luke wants us to remember, this, this is the law of the Lord, okay? This is a law that Jesus consummated. And when he consummated, that means that the civic law and the, the ceremonial law, the civil law was consummated and fulfilled, but not the moral law. The moral law remains God's heart. But anyway, according to the law, they came to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Actually, it's a little bit more pointed than that. Let me read it to you out of Exodus 13. God speaking to Moses says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. 
Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Okay? I just want you to visualize this. Joseph and Mary have been given a gift. They've been given a child. And so they go and they dedicate it to the Lord. And what that means is they give it back to him. Okay? You gave it to us. Now we give it back to you. Now, the most famous, at least in my mind, of these dedications that you're going to find in Scripture is the dedication that Hannah does of her newborn son, Samuel, in the book of 1 Samuel. You may remember, Hannah was barren. She was childless, and she was so upset because there were two wives, to his, her husband, Elkanah, and the other wife was a baby factory and really lorded it over poor Hannah who couldn't have one. So she goes to the temple, and she's wailing and crying out to God, begging for a son, so much so that old Eli thought she was drunk. But then God gave her a son, Samuel. So when he was weaned, she took him back and she gave him to the Lord. I mean, left him, literally, here he is, he's yours. Now, that worked for Samuel because Samuel was a Levite. And so therefore, that was where God had called the Levites, the tribes of Levi, to be the workers in the temple, to be the, the priests, and if you're a son of Aaron, to be the high priest. And so therefore, uh, that was okay for Samuel, but it's not okay for Jesus because Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. So this blows me away, okay? Forgive me because this is such a beautiful picture. What you would do with your child after you dedicated to the Lord is you would buy him back. You would redeem him. Now remember who we're talking about, the Redeemer. So they redeem the Redeemer. Look in Numbers 18, and their redemption, talking about the baby, their redemption price, at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix it five shekels in silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras or geras, whatever amount of money that is. But here's here's what I want to share with you. Now, this is a Kirby Williams insight. And if you're new here, let me tell you that usually I'm, I'm preaching what I feel that the Word is saying and the Spirit is saying through the Word. But whenever it's just me... Okay, I'll tell you, this is a Kirby Williams insight. So this, this is not from necessarily what Luke meant or what the Holy Spirit meant. But oh my goodness, can you see the symbolism of that? God gives us a Savior. He gives us the child. He gives it to Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph do what they're supposed to do. They go to the temple and they dedicate him to the Lord. They give him back to the Lord. And then they have to redeem him back to the human race for five pieces of silver. Because he's the redeemer, you see. He came to redeem us. He said himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as what? A ransom for many. He came to redeem us from the sin that holds us and hell that waits for us. He came to redeem us and he was sold into that cross for 30 pieces of silver. My brother and sister, I don't know if that says to you what it says to me. But what it says to me is that you were bought. We have been purchased. And at a huge, infinite price. More than five pieces of silver. More than 30. The price that our Lord paid for us to redeem us is incalculable. As Paul says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 
For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What a beautiful, beautiful picture we have. And once again, don't look for that in any books because that's just my thoughts. I think they're biblical thoughts, but they're still my thoughts. Well, going on to the 24th verse, we see that there was a sacrifice that associated with this. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there's no doubt that that was to fulfill the rites of purification. Now, there are many scholars who think that, well, maybe Joseph and Mary didn't have five pieces of silver, which was not a, not a little bit, you know, and, and that maybe in those days the sacrifice would have worked for both. But if you look it up, if you go and you look at this, you'll find out that the law of the Lord said that it will be a, a, a young lamb, and a bird, either a turtle dove or a pigeon. And so one of the significant points that we pick out of here is why did they offer two birds, two turtle doves or two pigeons? Well, if you read on in Leviticus, this is what you read. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she will take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And so what that tells us is that Joseph and Mary were poor. Because that's what poor people did. They gave two birds and not a lamb and a bird. Now, granted, he's probably not as poor as everyone because he's an artisan. He, he has a skill. He's a carpenter. But he was also a carpenter in you know, one of the dirt poor places on earth, which was Nazareth. So I don't think he was had a lot of money. So we wanted to see that helps us understand that Jesus was not raised in the lap of luxury. Well, with that said, I want to go back and I want to reopen this discussion of the naming of Christ. And we know that names are very significant. Names in Scripture quite often mean something. It doesn't mean that the person wasn't named that. It just means that it's sort of like a living parable, that God uses names, especially ones that he designates, to, 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 to convey a message, if you will, and certainly the name of Jesus Christ does. As I said before, Yeshua in the Hebrew, Jesus in the Greek, Joshua in, in English. It, it, is a, it is a name that means Yahweh saves. You remember what that name Yahweh refers to? That was the name God gave Moses when he appeared to him in the burning bush. And Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And he said, I am who I am. You shall tell them I am has sent you. Well, that word in Hebrew is Yahweh. It was the most holy, sacred word in their vocabulary. And they wouldn't even speak it. And they, could, they had to go through special rituals even to write it. So Jesus is named Yahweh saves. Now, what's extraordinary about this is that God determined the name, okay? You remember what happened back when Gabriel visited uh, um, Zechariah in, in the, um, I'm sorry, no, when Gabriel visited Mary um, earlier, we, we read that, the, the, that he said that, um, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. So we know that the angel is nothing more than a messenger of God. So God is the one who determined 
the name of that child. It's repeated when an angel, we don't know that it's Gabriel, but an angel appeared to Joseph and separately said, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the extraordinary part about these angelic meetings is that they revealed who this child was. No ordinary child, but rather God in the flesh. In fact, that's what he said to, first of all, to Mary. He will be great and will be called the son of the Most High, El Elyon. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And later he says, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. When the angel talks to Joseph, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John said, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God names himself Yahweh saves. That's huge, folks. Don't miss that. God names himself. So he wants you to know That he is the one who designated this name. Yahweh saves. There's a horrible tendency. and Well, actually, it's been going on all through the history of the Christian church. And that is to pull God apart. And to not recognize him for who he is. We read earlier in the responsive reading, the Shema. This was recited by the Jews, and they they had a misunderstanding of God. They didn't understand the New Testament God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here's what they said, and this is so essential. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. In other words, a modern attempt to say, oh, it's Jesus only. We don't need the God of the Old Testament. He's so angry and wrathful and vengeful. And he only is reluctantly uh, uh, forgiving. We, We don't want that God. Let's unhinge him. Let's take him away because we really want the God of the New Testament. And it's Jesus and Jesus only. 24 million people count themselves as oneness Pentecostals around the world. And they do not believe in the Trinity. They believe it's Jesus only. More recently, it's been the Holy Spirit only. The Father is vengeful and angry. And Jesus, he's kind of yesterday's news. Man, it's the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is doing now. Well, we need to remember what the Jews of old knew. What Jesus repeated every single day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Three persons, Father, Spirit, Son, but one God. So the way I want to bring this together, and the way I want to sort of end this, is I want to make a point. I want to make a point that God has always been. Always been faithful. He's always been Redeemer. He has always been forgiving and merciful. He has always been a God of love. And he has always saved. 
And that when God says, my name shall be Yahweh saves, he's reminding you, don't leave my Old Testament behind. Because there you are going to find so much about who I am and what my plans are and how much I love you. So don't unhinge it. So what I want to do in the time that I have left, just sit back. Just sit back and enjoy hearing the word of God. I want to impress upon you fully from the Old Testament that what God meant when he says, Yahweh saves. Okay? First of all, Yahweh is faithful. Moses tells us this in Deuteronomy. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh also redeems. Always has. Job puts it this way. I know that my redeemer lives. And at the last he will take his stand on the earth. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit. And my life shall see the light. Isaiah puts it this way, speaking, For God, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, the Holy One of Israel. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And they should be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. God is faithful. Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh redeems. Yahweh forgives. Moses puts it this way, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving an iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Every time you hear that word Lord, underneath that word in the Hebrew is Yahweh. Yahweh forgives. David goes on in the Psalms and says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salah. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. Salah. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Isaiah continues, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Jeremiah says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh redeems. Yahweh forgives. And oh my goodness, brothers and sisters, Yahweh loves. It was not because you were more in number, Moses writes, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. From the Psalms. By the day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. From David, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. From Isaiah, because you were precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. From Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh redeems, Yahweh forgives, Yahweh loves, and Yahweh saves. From Moses, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. From David, salvation belongs to the Lord. You are the God of my salvation, for you I wait all the day long. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord belong deliverances from death. From Isaiah, behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I, the Lord, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. From Jeremiah, truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From Hosea, but I am the Lord your God, beside me there is no Savior. And from Jonah, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. That's what Yahweh saved means. That's what the name of Jesus Christ means. That's what the angel meant when he told Joseph, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not a dismembered trinity, but God, Yahweh, saves. That's why Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Because it is God from all eternity who has planned your salvation. It is God from all eternity has loved you, has redeemed you, has forgiven you, has been faithful to His covenants right on down to bring you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's what the name of Jesus means, Yahweh saves. Perhaps no better, never better put than by Peter himself as he stood before the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts, and I close with this. In the fourth chapter, talking to the same people who just a month or so, a couple of months earlier, had crucified Jesus with such hatred and animosity. He stood before them with boldness and fearlessness. And this is what he said. This Jesus, this Yahweh saves. This Yahweh is salvation. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. Yahweh saves. Pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you keep turning us backwards to such a glorious history that we have in the Old Testament, what a, what a sin it is, what a crime it is, what a tragedy it is that so much of modern Christendom wants to throw it out, wants to ignore it, doesn't want to talk about it, just a nice bunch of little stories that we tell our children. Maybe we use them as illustrations every now and then, but no real truth, really. Lord, you have always been faithful. You have always been redeeming. You've always been forgiving merciful. You've always been a loving God and you have always been the Savior. We know, dear Lord, because you tell us, you named yourself, Yahweh saves. And it started with you. It is completed by you. That even though we worship three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, we know as you gave us in your word that you are one. One in being, three in persons. We give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.